Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. John Redsecker is one of New York City's finest musicians. He has decades of experience playing Broadway musicals and is one of the inspirations for this podcast. He was one of the four drummers featured in the Broadway Drummers Roundtable in the June 1981 issue of Modern Drummer. And I'm honored to have him as a guest on my podcast 41 years later. John's long list of credentials is stunning. Shows he's done in the past include Barnum, Anything Goes, Meet Me in St. Louis, My Favorite Year, Kiss of the Spider Woman, Beauty and the Beast, The Little Mermaid, Anything Goes, and now he is the drummer for the hit Broadway show, Aladdin. You'll learn a lot from his story, so stay tuned for the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast featuring John Redsecker. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My name is Clayton Craddock, and today my guest is John Redsecker. He is one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast. I was looking up on a walk one day, I think in 2020, and I was walking with my girlfriend just thinking about what I'd like to do with my life since Broadway wasn't coming back at the time. And I was like, you know what, let me just use the knowledge that I have to try to teach people what I've done over the past 22 years. And I thought about this article that I saw in Modern Drummer, which I'm going to actually show people here. People can see it. It's with Simon Phillips on the cover. It's August of 1980, uh, June of 1981. And it featured four drummers in the Broadway Drummers Roundtable with Karen Lacombe. And it featured Dorian McGee, Paul Pizzuti, Mike Epstein, and John Retzecker. And at the time, John was doing a show called Barnum. They all shared their experience of what's, what it was like playing in Broadway pits. And it's like, I don't think anyone else is talking about that anymore. So I said to myself, why don't I just get there and, and do something like that in a modern sense? And with a podcast, I'm able to do that. And finally getting a chance to speak with the legendary John Redsecker. Thank you for being a part of this. My pleasure. It's amazing this connection, you know, goes back to uh, reading that article uh, from <clears throat> a long time ago. But it's good to be here, and uh, it's good to talk to you. There's a, <laughs> a picture of you. You're just looking cool with your mustache, and you had this, this wide-collared shirt, and you're smoking a cigarette. You just look cool back. That's what everybody did back then before they maybe figured out, wait a minute, this smoking thing isn't very good for you. I'm assuming you don't smoke anymore? Absolutely. It's over I for 20. Well, I can tell you, I got married in 87. My daughter was born in 89. I quit before uh, she was born. So it's been, uh, yeah, many, many years. I finally uh, wised up. Well, let's just go back. Were you, were you born in, in New York City? Goshen, Indiana. <clears throat> wow. Small town, a couple hours from Chicago. Uh, in school bands, marching band was a big deal in Indiana. I happened to have a really good drum teacher 
who was a woman. And she was great. Amazing, rudimental style. She could play anything. She also was great at mallets and timpani. And I studied with her and was in, you know, the like the bands that I could be in school, marching band. Then when uh, I went to college, I was only in the college jazz band for about the last year. They had a really good drummer <clears throat> who did until he left. Then I got a, a shot at playing in the college uh, big band. Where'd you go to college? <clears throat> a small liberal arts school in Indiana called DePaul University. Down near Indianapolis. Uh, played in, with some bands uh, there at school, met some people I still stay in touch with. But a couple things happened while I was in college that that made a difference. I didn't expect to be, I wasn't a music major. I never thought I would uh, be good enough to be a professional musician. You, did, you weren't a music major? No, I was a psychology major. Why did you choose psych psychology? I thought I'd be a clinical psychologist, a counselor, and play drums on weekends was, was what I was thinking my life would be. What made you choose psychology? It's like, you know, what was, were you just interested in it as a kid or did you have people in your family that were uh, clinical psychologists? No, did, uh, nobody in the family. I had an older sister who actually started playing violin first and then switched to drums. So there were drums in the house, which got me interested in drums early on. They were available. So it was fun and I loved it, but I didn't think I was uh, career potential for that. That wasn't, you know, didn't think that was uh, possible. But when I got to college my freshman year, I met a guy from New York who a piano player that I did gigs with and he uh, had worked he was from New York and had worked in the Catskill Mountains in summers playing in hotels in bands and he got some a few of us to go to come to New York and I uh, spent a summer playing in a hotel in the Catskill Mountains which was a great experience uh, a different act every night. Uh, uh, they'd come in and rehearse. Usually it was a singer or a comedian and a comedian. And then we'd do the show and then we'd go downstairs in the lounge and play lounge music. And in the lounge on Friday nights were belly dancers and on Saturday night were strippers. <laughs> wow. And it was great. It was amazing summer. Lots and of hi-hat work, I guess, with the strippers. It was, <laughs> I was making it up as I went, you know. Mm. Uh, nobody taught me about that. I had to figure it out. <clears throat> did and you one night a week we had a, a dance team who did lots of different, oh, they were, you know, they did Latin dances. They did a bunch of different stuff. And it was really good uh, broadening playing experience for me to have to figure that out and how to and learn that stuff and play so that was a that planted a seed 
you know, being able to do that and that summer. Um, and I went back to school and then another event happened. I went on a work study program in Philadelphia for a semester as a psychology major. And I worked at a hospital for drug addicts and alcoholics for a semester in Philadelphia. <clears throat> that was quite an experience also. That, I think, woke me up a little. I got serious about finishing strong in school. And I decided if I was ever going to try music, because I wasn't sure I wanted to go on to graduate school in psychology. So I thought, if you're going to try playing music, now's the time to do it, because you're out of college, you got a degree. I worked locally, worked a year as a, on a on a, as an occupational therapy technician in a hospital, I worked as a caseworker for the welfare department for a year. I'll get back. Here, here's where the music comes <laughs> back. So the teacher that I had studied with going through high school, her daughter was studying in Chicago. Some would go to Chicago to study with a great musician, percussionist, uh, band leader, arranger named Bobby Christian. So Bobby Christian, uh, I remember seeing him play at like a big Ludwig uh, event day. And he, years later, would come down to Elkhart, Indiana, where the, my original teacher was, and teach a few advanced or adult students. And I was taking lessons from him there. One day he said, my son, Norm, a singer asked him to audition to play and he doesn't really want to do it why don't you go take the audition drove to chicago auditioned with these people and uh, happened to be at chess recording studios i don't know if you ever heard of that place i got the gig moved to chicago we didn't have much work but we would go come to new york and showcase and play for record people trying to get a record deal for this singer we'd go back to chicago for a while then we'd come back to New York and play some other clubs and more people would hear her and some of them would take us into a studio and record. I met people in New York that way. Eventually, she got the singer got a record deal. The band didn't get to play on the record, which is typical, but I didn't know it at the time. I wanted to move to New York and I'd met enough people and I knew folks and I moved to New York and that's how I how I got to New York City from uh, Goshen, Indiana. You had dreams of being the next E.F. Skinner or Sigmund Freud or Carl Rogers, and you just threw all that away to play drums. <laughs> drums was a lot more fun. <laughs> I'm sure it is, especially dealing with, you know, look, we have, to do, we have to solve problems as drummers, but it's probably a lot less taxing mentally than uh, being a clinical psychologist. It's amazing, you know, to me that it worked out and that I was, uh, have been able to be a musician and make a living is still, uh, still amazes me how it happened. When you got to New York, was Broadway at any point in time on your radar? It sure looked good to me because it was a steady job. I thought it looked great, but at that point in time, <clears throat> and I got a chance to sub 
in a show, but the union at the time made me wait because I was transferring from an Indiana local into the New York union. I, they wouldn't let me sub in a show one night. They said, no, you got to wait. And I forget if it was three months or six months before you can do that, because that's a steady job and you can't work a steady job until you've been here this length of time. Somehow I got to, did a summer stock of Godspell, which somebody then put a tour together, and I did a tour of Godspell. When I got back to town, I had met Paul Pizzuti, who got to get the show uh, Godspell, and he was going to have me sub for him. But back then, there was nothing in the theater contract about subbing at all. Subbing wasn't even mentioned. It was entirely up to the house contractor. The house contractor for Godspell didn't know me, so Paul couldn't use me as a sub. It was a different world back then. Since subs weren't even weren't on the books, the regular players would pay their own subs. The subs weren't employees of the theater like we are now? Correct. Wow. It was like the Wild West. And shareholder would pay you whatever they wanted to pay you. Really? Wow. <laughs> That's fascinating. Did you have to do the same process as we do now? You know, go and watch and record the show, I guess. I don't know what you recorded on back then, but did they, they didn't have like recordings to give you and did they give you the the music? Or how, did, how did it work back then? Yeah, I would record. I'd go, I'd watch, I'd record, I'd get a copy of the book sub and hopefully get approved in the beginning there was nothing in the contract about subs or the payment of subs so there's a lot of freedom uh, now that we have and a lot of protections that we have and that subs have that were not there when i started what was the first gig that you had on broadway Aside from subbing, the first show I got of my own was called Barnum, and that was, uh, I think, 1980. I had subbed in the show Annie. That conductor of Annie got called in at the last minute because there were problems in Barnum. Cy Coleman, who was the composer and producer, had said, I, we want two percussionists. I don't want a drummer. This is a circusy show. They got to the first rehearsal, and Sai said, where's the drummer? So one of the percussionists left. I came in at the last minute, uh, like a, a day or two before the first preview. I think I played through most all of the music once before the first preview. And that was the first show of my own. It was great. The band was on stage, which I think just adds a whole nother uh, level of uh, connection with the show when you're on stage. I think so. I think it really makes a difference. It, add, it, it uh, It's a great thing. So when this came out in this article in Modern Drummer that sparked this whole podcast, when this came out in June of 1981, you were relatively, well, you were new to the whole Broadway scene. How did this interview come to pass? Did they reach out to specific drummers or were they, you know, how did they find you and, and get you into this modern drummer article? I don't know how that person who wrote the article decided who to get. 
did you know these people before Mike Epstein and Dorian and Paul? Well, you knew Paul already. I knew Paul already for sure. And I knew Mike Epstein. Uh, he was, I met him early on and I subbed for him. When I first met him, he was playing a show at the village gate called let my people come, which moved to Broadway and I subbed for him when it was on Broadway. And he was, he also was the drummer in Annie. I subbed for him in Annie. And Dorian at the time was doing a chorus line. Right. And Paul was doing Evita. But why she picked us, don't know. Did you know many of the other drummers that were doing a lot of the shows at that time? Yeah, because I subbed for some of them. I mean, you know, Ray Marchica was there. He, uh, Jim Saparito, I had met, I think possibly at Radio City because I subbed at Radio City. Um, Hank Jeremello was still around. He was the, uh, he took over Chorus Line when, I think, when uh, Alan Herman left. And uh, yeah, I think I knew a lot of the drummers because I was trying to sub for them and trying to meet them. There was a drummer in Greece named Mike Falk, and I eventually got to, I subbed in there. So I, I was trying to meet the guys and try to get in as a sub. When you did Barnum, though, in 1981, did they have monitors like they do now, or was it all you were all in the pit and you could just listen to each other? The band was on stage in a, in a row against the back wall, and we had to wear circusy uniforms, and the show started with a trumpet player coming from the back of the house, walking through the audience in the aisle playing uh, the opening number. And then we all came on stage, sat down at our instruments and joined in. And we also marched around some on the stage. Um, and at the time there wasn't anything in the contract about musicians being on stage in costume and marching around. But that show got uh, people to say, you know, shouldn't the musicians who march around in uniform or through the house in uniform, shouldn't there be some extra pay for that? They're not sitting in a pit. Um, so that then the next contract negotiation, I think that uh, got into the contract. So in 1981, you were playing Barnum. Could a musician back then support themselves by just doing a Broadway show? I don't know how much it was paying back then, but back then, was that something that was steady enough and financially uh, fulfilling at the time to just do that? I, yes. I did other stuff, too, if I could. Um, I used to work with a singer named Peter Allen. I did touring with him. Uh, and uh, I did, uh, I don't know when it started. I did rehearsals at Radio City for the Christmas show for many years. But I don't remember exactly when that started. While I was doing a show or whether I wasn't doing a show, I could still 
uh, do those Christmas show rehearsals. Um, so, but I think, yes, I think you could, I'm single, I, you know, so I didn't have a family yet, but, you know, thank goodness the union was, you know, we got a building fund started and, uh, you did get health health benefit contributions, you know, which was important. Uh, so I thought, you know, it was to have a steady show and it ran about a little over two years. I was the luckiest guy around, you know, it was great on stage or seeing stuff. It's a, it was a circusy kind of show. And I even went to, to do my own research. I thought, I want to go see the real circus and see what the drummer does. So I went to Madison Square Garden. I, I watched the, you know, the regular circus show a couple times and really listened to the drummer who was catching three things at the same time sometimes. Uh, and it was a learning experience and it was great and it helped me do Barnum better uh, after seeing that. Uh, and it was fun because you were catching stuff on stage as it was happening and uh, it was great. Did you have another show lined up before that one closed or were you just like, oh man, what do I do next? I, I didn't have anything lined up and I would sub in between shows. I'd sub. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we subbed for each other, uh, you know, when Pizzuti, I subbed for Pizzuti when, if he had a show and I didn't, uh, I subbed for Marchica. And very much similar to the way it's done now. <laughs> you know, I asked this to another, uh, guest of mine. Have you ever hired somebody as a sub that has never done a show before? No. <laughs> Did you feel that the risk was is too high or you just didn't, you had so many other people that you work with that you could just call on and say, you know, I have like five people that I can just call that I know that can already sub. I did have, you know, after having my own show and after subbing already, I did have, I knew a, a fair number of drummers who, you know, were working on Broadway and had shows or made, then they didn't or whatever. So, uh, but I would not, I think uh, I knew how much was involved. It's very difficult to sub. I had done it enough and know how much time and preparation and uh, how over-prepared you need to be, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's very difficult and it takes a lot and it isn't just the preparation and the music and practically memorizing it, you know, and the page turns and the this and that and how he does this or this, it, the, if you can't read and follow a conductor, 
game over. And I think the only, you know, you need people who are experienced and know how to do that. Even if they're great drummers, it, this is a unique situation and it's really key and important to be able to interpret, follow, deal with conductors. It's, it's essential. So if somebody is coming to New York City and they're eager to get into Broadway and they want to play for a Disney musical, <laughs> I want to do what you do, John. What do I need to do in order to, to be a drummer who plays Broadway shows? I suggest off-Broadway that I think it's a little easier to get your foot in the door. Uh, and the more likely that someone is gonna allow you to get some of your initial experience at off Broadway or doing a tour, but I mean, tours now are, there aren't that many of those and a lot of really good people are, you know, playing tours, touring. I mean, tour is great and you get experience and, that's very valuable. Uh, but I think instead, of, I think you're more likely to get a shot at subbing in an off-Broadway show than in a Broadway show without having a lot of experience. And it's, you know, it's a good way to get experience. I did the first, I think the first show of my own was uh, an off-Broadway show. And the first show I subbed in was an off-Broadway show. So after Barnum, you started subbing again, and you landed another show. Or is it Mayor that you did? Mayor was a, was an off Broadway show uh, that was down at the Village Gate. Mm. Uh, and I did that for a while, and then I got a Broadway show. And I can't remember which one it was. Um, Not those were the days. No, that one wasn't actually a Broadway show. Hmm. It it was. It might have been "Meet Me in St. Louis." I did, or "Song and Dance" was another show I did. My favorite year was another one I did. Hmm. Uh, Marilyn and American Fable. That was that show was noteworthy because uh, it wasn't doing well, and they brought in a sort of a rescue squad of people, uh, experienced Broadway folks, a choreographer by our glee, uh, Tommy Walsh, choreographer, and Wally Harper who. Piano player, musical director, did Broadway shows, and also worked a lot with a singer named Barbara Cook, who had been in Broadway and then did concerts. And I worked a lot with Wally and Barbara. But that's where I met him. Uh, met was uh, He was part of the folks who came in and tried to uh, help Marilyn but the show opened and didn't do well and 
closed quickly, but I ended up doing a lot of work with Wally and Barbara. And one of the great things is we would do pops concerts with orchestras, which to me is an, was a great experience, you know, to be playing with a, a singer and Wally played piano some and he stood up and conduct some or conduct from the piano. And just to play with a big orchestra what you know is different it feels different and i it was i was just lucky to be able to have that kind of experience because i think it's it was helpful uh and just expanded me a little more playing shows in new york city in the late 70s and early 80s I wasn't here until the 90s and things started to change as far as the city was concerned. Uh, you're young, you're not married, had no kids, you're playing shows. From what I understand and what I remember what I've been told, New York City <laughs> and Times Square was not the safest place to be. Did you, <laughs> I shouldn't say did you fear for your life but did you like get off the subway and go right to the theater or was it a situation where you kind of knew how to you know hold yourself like what was that what was the scene like back then it it was different and 42nd street unfortunately when I got here was a mess a lot of theaters had been abandoned and were porno movie theaters. And to walk from 8th Avenue to Broadway or 7th Avenue, I mean, it was uncomfortable. It was so, it was nasty. But there was a whole Times Square renovation that happened uh, that turned it around and... Uh, transformed it um, and made it, uh, you know, what the great popular place it is today where tourists are on the street all the time. But it was a mess then uh, when I first got here. I'm sure you like the, the, the way that Broadway is now as opposed to the way it was in 1981. Absolutely. <laughs> were you part of the New York recording music scene back then? Were you playing a lot of clubs back then in addition to playing shows? Not a lot of recording. I did some, but I was not, I was not uh, busy doing it. They were, I, I would uh, make CDs with singers, um, but... Uh, I didn't do it a lot. Uh, I did some, uh, but primarily shows. Well, let's just talk about some of the shows you've done. Let me just get this right. Anything <laughs> goes? Yeah, twice. <laughs> Meet I, me in St. Louis. Yep. Those were the days. Yep. My favorite year. Yeah. Kiss of the Spider Woman. Yeah. Beauty and the Beast. Yep. Little Mermaid, and again, Anything Goes Again, and Aladdin. Now, you recorded all the cast recordings with all these shows? Not all of them. Uh, 
Kiss of the Spider Woman started out of town and went to London and they recorded the cast album in London. So I didn't uh, do that. Um, Beauty and the Beast, they did the film before the Broadway show and I played on that original animated film. And then I got the show. Um, Mermaid was a cast album. Um, I think there was Song and Dance cast album. Barnum definitely a cast album. I don't know if my favorite year had a cast album or Marilyn. I don't think it did. Um, Do you have a favorite know. cast album that you've done? No, I liked the first Anything Goes one. Patti LuPone was in on that one. But I don't know. I guess if I had to pick one, that's the one that comes to mind. Barnum was pretty good, too. And if you had to pick your favorite musical that you've ever done? Well, I'd have to say the one that I'm playing now is always the one that's my favorite. <laughs> Why do you say that? Because uh, that's what I'm doing now, and I'm uh, <laughs> I'm happy and glad to have it. And that um, show is Aladdin, ladies and gentlemen. So when you were growing up, uh, I know you said it was your older sister that used to play drums, correct? Yes. Was she switched she, from violin to drums. Was she, you know, one of your bigger influences, or did you have anybody that was in popular music that you're like, you know, that that person's cool. Was it, were there any other musicians or any other drummers that you looked up to at the time? I, I don't know when I started doing this, I somehow subscribed to downbeat magazine and there were, they had record reviews and a blindfold test where they would play records and have, you know, people like miles Davis try to guess who it was or say whether he liked them or they had these. And I would, read those reviews and stuff and I'd order records uh, and I'd get them in the mail and I didn't really know uh, what I was getting, but I, but stuff that was mentioned well in the magazine, I would order some and, and I would just listen to stuff at home and play, try to play along, uh, you know, with jazz records or with, I like the current music of the day. I wanted, I played in, you know, that I wanted to play also, but I liked listening to uh, these records I would order, <laughs> not really knowing what I was going to get. And uh, I don't know I heard I heard a lot of great people. I didn't have just one favorite drummer. Um, there were so many uh, who were so great. It was uh, I I couldn't. Pick one. If someone were to ask you, since you've done so many shows, you know, what's the most important thing that a drummer should know about being a success on Broadway? If you like what you hear on this show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.com. At this time, we have no advertisers. And we'd like to keep it that way. Our staff is small, but growing. We can only produce a show with listener contributions from people like you. 
To continue producing the high-quality podcast you're listening to, publishing engaging newsletter content, and posting YouTube videos, we would appreciate any financial contributions you can make. There are a couple of ways you can do that. You can sign up to be a monthly or annual subscriber at broadwaydrumming101.com. You can also contribute any amount you wish through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash broadwaydrumming101 or through Venmo at broadwaydrumming101. Or help keep us caffeinated by buying us a cup of coffee or a week's worth at buymeacoffee.com forward slash BD101. That's buymeacoffee.com forward slash BD101. We appreciate any support you can give. Don't forget to subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page. You'll find more content that isn't featured on the podcast or on the Broadway Drumming 101 Instagram page. Make sure when you subscribe to the YouTube page, you click on the button to be notified when a new video is published. Be sure to visit our new shop at merchandise.broadwaydrumming101.com. Thanks again for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. If someone were to ask you, since you've done so many shows, you know, what's the most important thing that a drummer should know about being a success on Broadway? Uh, as far as the skill that is the most crucial... I agree with Warren Oates, following the conductor, being able to follow conductors is the make or break uh, skill. Uh, Because there are people who can play and there are people who are willing to work hard enough to put in the time to learn it and to try to copy what the regular is doing. But if, if you can't negotiate a conductor and figure them out, uh, cause you get, you have to play for different conductors, you know, I mean, in my show, there's, there could be one of four guys any night, any show, uh, pretty soon it'll be five different, you know? So, that to me is the crucial sort of unteachable skill that people have to develop and they have to learn and they can't, uh, you can't practice that at home. And, and, you know, it's not like a a skill thing on your instrument or your chops or your uh, memorization. It's the real time in the moment uh, following conductors, I think, is probably the one most important uh, skill, if I had to pick one. Beauty and the Beast ran for 13 years? 13 and a half. Wow. How did you keep things fresh for 13 and a half years? I tried, I would take off and do other things uh, when I could, um, play with you know, I got to play with a lot of good singers uh, doing club acts or things like that. Um, uh, and I would try to get out and, and do other things. I still did rehearsals at Radio City for the Christmas show a lot during the day. 
I just did as much, you know, I, I hardly said no to anything because I figure whatever job you have is going to end. I tried to, you know, do as much as I could, you know, had a family, a couple kids, wanted them to go to college, <laughs> you know. Playing the same thing the same way every night. You said you do other things in order to not, in order to keep things fresh. How do you not get bored when you're there? There, if there are spots in the show, and luckily there are some spots in my show that I can play a, a fill. And it, I tend to play, you know, 95% the same way, but there are some spots that I can actually change a fill a little bit or I can play a different fill uh, or something different. Uh, but 95 plus is, you know, trying to be consistent and trying to make sure that the time is solid and that everybody knows where the time is and that it's clear I feel like that's my job and my first priority so that everybody can play together. And I also think, you know, this is the, maybe it's the second show of the day, but for the people in the audience who spent a lot of money, this is their maybe first and only time they're ever going to see this. I'll be here tomorrow, but they're only here now. So they deserve to get the best uh, that I got when they're here, because this, this could be it for them. And the dancers, they need to feel the music. They need, uh, they, it's important to them. It makes a difference. I did a show called Dancing um, and a tour of it. I subbed for Alan Herman and did a tour of the show for six months and it was about dancing and it was so there it was so physical and draining they had to do it in three acts so there were two intermissions it was about the dancing and the uh you realize how important it is to the dancers all the accents they it makes a difference they need the energy they need the intent they need, uh, it helps them. So I just try to remind myself that, that, you know, these people are only going to hear this and see this once, and the cast is working hard to give it 110%. I should be doing the same. And the people, the really good people that I've worked with, Cheetah Rivera, Anne Reinking, they only know how to do it 110%. They just don't know how to do it any other way. Peter Allen was like that. Uh, lots of folks uh, that I was lucky enough to work with. And I think uh, that's the way I try to approach it. I certainly am not always, I make mistakes. Absolutely, I make mistakes. Um, but I'm trying to bring the intent uh, with me. When I went to 
see you play Aladdin many, many years ago, I noticed it was a little bit different from what I was used to uh, in uh, certain pits because I haven't played that many shows, but the shows that I've done, they've always been in a pit where I've had headphones and an avion. You have hotspots, correct, if I'm not mistaken? Speakers? Actually, no, I I have a headphone... I have headphones and an AVM, but I'm not completely enclosed. Mm. There's plexi around me, but it doesn't go clear to the ceiling. I, uh, I did one show where I was completely enclosed, and I didn't like it. Um, and I asked to not be completely enclosed in Aladdin because I like hearing the live sound of the orchestra. Um, I feel like I can connect better with them. I do use the avioms and sometimes one ear uh, on and one off. And maybe it's just quirky about me, but I feel like I connect with the band better. Uh, this way. So your shows that you've done over the years, you've never had a drum booth. Once I did. Uh, I my, uh, no, I'm trying to think. It might have been it's probably Mermaid. Mm. Uh, yeah. And you did. You weren't really into. You don't. You don't. You prefer not to have that. Yes. Okay. I can understand that that there needs to be plexi and soundproofing and stuff around the drums absolutely uh and uh you know i certainly don't want to drive anybody crazy playing too loud by playing too loud next to you know mm-hmm. but uh to be completely enclosed i felt like separated me from the rest of the orchestra that i it didn't feel as good to me could be just quirky of me i don't know in all the shows that you've done, have there been many with click tracks or have they mostly been without click? Mostly without. Fascinating. Um, Something that you would advise a drummer to never do in a Broadway pit. Uh, argue with the conductor. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, have you have you heard of people doing that and or or seen that or have you done that yourself? <laughs> no, no, no. I I think uh, and I think Owen said something to this effect too. Is if the conductor wants something, you say yes, or if he you know uh, were there to make his job work because he's making the music work with the stage. So uh, if he needs something, uh, then that's part of our job, I think, is to uh, help him do his job. You know, we need to, the drummer needs to be the conductor's friend. Uh, he's got to, and he's got to feel like you're there helping him do his job because he's got to, you know, make the stage happy and make the stage and the band 
work together. And uh, so we got to be uh, on his side and helpful trying to make his job as easy as we can. So other than the Lion King, Tarzan, uh, Frozen, it seems like you are the drummer for the mouse. You are the Disney drummer. It, it worked out, uh, but it, it, I wouldn't uh, have thought of it that way. The first, you know, the first thing, the Beauty and the Beast film I did was here, and they did it in New York. The same conductor conducted um, those shows, Beauty and the Beast, Mermaid, and Aladdin. Ah. So I think about relationship, and I think actually relationships are a good thing to keep in mind for people starting out uh, and who want to do shows and whatever is you want to build relationships with people. Uh, and uh, so for me, it's been I've, these shows you've mentioned have all been the same conductor. Because you want the conductor, whatever the next project is, whether it's another show or he's doing a cabaret act with the singer or the people in the band that you were, you know, have some other gig and they, da, 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 if you want, you know, you, uh, you want those relationships to continue and to grow. And uh, it can lead to other things outside of your particular show. And it's good to do outside things. It's good, you know, I think it's important. How did you meet the conductor of Aladdin and Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast? He was an assistant to uh, this guy I mentioned before, Wally Harper, uh, who came in to uh, try to fix a show that was in trouble. And uh, he was an assistant. He was a student just out of school. And in this, Wally had heard him uh, in, when he was in college. And when he started in New York, uh, he was like Wally's uh, assistant on this project that I, I uh, met Walt, that Wally worked on. And uh, so that's how I met him. And it was a few years, he did tours on his own, he did other shows, he did other things. And then uh, uh, he was the conductor of uh, Beauty and the Beast at hmm. the Broadway show. What's his name again? Michael Kosserin. Okay. Doing so many shows over so many years, do you have any specific gear that you prefer to use? Do you have endorsements? I never sought out any endorsements, and I, I didn't. Uh, somebody, one, one company, somebody offered me drums, uh, and I didn't really want to switch to them. I didn't want to have to go through getting the name of the drum company and the, the program of, uh, you know, I didn't want to. So 
no, I never got any endorsements or pursued anything. I was lucky enough early on. I do you remember Modern Drum Shop? Joe Cusadas ran Modern Drum Shop. I guess it was closed. Maybe it was a, it was one of the two drum real drum shops in the city, and I had seen Joe Cusadas years ago. Um, and I studied with him when I got to New York and he opened up a drum shop and he went, made a trip to the Zildjian factory and he took me and another of his students, uh, which was a great experience. And I had these guys, uh, there was a guy from the, the, in the Zildjian factory who was assigned to me and I helped me go around and pick out symbols that I wanted. And I mean, it was like a kid in a candy store. It was, un, you know, it was amazing to be in that factory. But I never pursued endorsements. I have, you know, three or four different kinds of sets. If people wanted to uh, come to New York and play shows, you know, you talk about building relationships. You're very generous with your, your time, and you've, you've allowed me to come watch and uh, – if somebody wanted to get in contact with you, do you allow people to come watch you to play or do you have to, do they have to be people that are ready to sub? I don't know what the situation is like now. I mean, I know now it's a little bit different, but in general, do you have people come in and watch that just want to see what you do? Or is it more of a thing where they should be like kind of ready to sub for you? I, it used to be, I, I would, uh, gladly allow anybody um to sit with me you know any drummer interested uh i would but because of the pandemic and because of testing and um i don't think that's possible anymore yeah if it uh so i haven't had i haven't had anybody come and watch and uh sit with me unless it's a sub specifically Mm-hmm. kind of sub on the book and learn the show that way. It's unfortunate. Um, uh, and if things changed enough and, and it was doable again, I would uh, certainly let people sit with me just to watch. Um, Cause people were, when I was getting started there, you know, people were very nice to me. I had, I, they and uh, it helped, you know, when people were nice and encouraging. And uh, so, and I feel so fortunate that I've been able to do this, you know, for a career. And uh, so, yeah, I would uh, be happy to, uh, but I don't, it's not really feasible now, right now. There are certain people that have a big social media presence. Are you on TikTok, uh, Twitter, and Instagram? <laughs> are you that kind of person? Or are you just like, you know, I can't do this? Is there yeah, you have a website? I don't. I, I'm afraid <laughs> I've, I've failed miserably in, in uh, all of that. I don't have any of those things. I did. Somebody talked me into LinkedIn 
uh, years ago, and that's the only thing I'm on, and I I don't look at it. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, so no, I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm I guess out of date and old school on uh, <laughs> it's participating right. in that. It's a lot of work trying to do all this stuff. A lot of people have Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, you know, website, YouTube pages. It's a lot of work. And sometimes I can't imagine. I couldn't keep up. Yeah, it's sometimes it could be overwhelming. It's like you gotta pick your pick your poison. Yeah. Anyway, John, thank you very much for taking some time out to uh share your story. And to hear you uh, talk about the business of Broadway and what we do in the pit and to hear some of the, you know, ways that you've managed to uh, have such a lengthy career. Well, thanks. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I look I look forward to uh, seeing you at, at your next show. <laughs> You keep putting that out there. I got to, I got to take it in and, and, uh, I, it, and digest I think it. it's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you again. And, uh, we will definitely talk soon. Great. Take All right. care. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for listening to the Broadway drumming one-on-one podcast.